This is a mental health podcast, so difficult topics may arise. Please proceed with caution. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Getting Better, Stories of Mental Health. I'm Micheline Malouf. And I'm Nadia Desi, and we're your hosts and licensed therapists here to destigmatize mental health one episode at a time. In each episode, we dive into our guests' special experiences with mental health, coping mechanisms, and how they have embraced their own mental health journey. And today we are interviewing the incredible Dominique Jackson. Dominique is a transgender actress, author, model, and reality television personality. She played the role of Electra in the television series Pose. She's also the author of her autobiography, The Transsexual from Tobago. Today, we speak to Dominique about her personal story, and she provides useful tips for individuals in the LGBTQIA community. Welcome, Dominique. Thanks for joining us. How are you today? How are you feeling? Um, well, today is a painful day for me because I had double extractions. And so I'm in like pain. I was like screaming a bit earlier. And I am one that I went through so much. I was just saying to uh, my fiance and my everything um, just a few moments ago, I was like, I never cried. I didn't, you know, cry or go to, I just kept going. And the past three years, it's like, I can cry, I cry, I go through these moments, I feel pain. I'm like, okay, this is not supposed to be me. <laughs> I'm strong, I don't bend, you know? But other than that, I'm doing pretty well. I feel uh, pretty blessed to have overcome a lot of the things that I have overcome and been through and be able to be able to tell the story today. Well, thank you for being here despite the pain. And I imagine this is very <laughs> difficult for you uh, being on here and still joining us and talking about some deep mental health issues. Uh, so thank you. And we're going to get right in and uh, start talking about these important subjects. So tell us a little bit about your experience around mental health as a child or a teenager. Well, um, as a child, when you thought about mental health, you thought about crazy people. There was no, you didn't put mental and health together. You know, it was mental issues. They were crazy. These people were insane. And you never thought that, you know, you yourself could be experiencing these things. Um, as a child and being a West Indian, I was always taught that you're supposed to be strong. You're supposed to be tough, you know, just brush it off, let that stuff go. You never realized that it piles onto you. It was around uh, 2000. Uh, five, I was told by the pastor, uh, one of the pastors in the church, that I wasn't going to live out that year because of my identity. And I carried that with me. And I realized that my upbringing and what I was taught is what had influenced me into believing that I was actually nothing and that these people had this power to determine the length of my duration of my life. Um, and when I woke up in 2006, that January morning, you know, from a hangover from New Year's because I thought I was going to die, but then I just wanted to drink it away. I didn't realize that I was actually one doing the harm to myself. So I had to now start to discover that mental health is an issue, that these thoughts that I was having was not something that I needed to dismiss because they were recurring, that the nightmares I was having was was a, a part of me and I could actually be strong enough to to face them meaning get up in the morning and talk about them, talk about them with a therapist. Um, from where I am, I was told that we're not supposed to see therapists, you know, but then around 2006, when I had this epiphany, it was, you know what, um, 
I'm not going to go to a therapist. But in 2012, I just came up with this thing of, you know what, I'm not going to live in the dark anymore. And I said to myself, there's someone I can talk to and it's not going to be my neighbor down the street because with the therapist, I can sue you. With my neighbor down the street, you're going to go around and talk everything about me. So it was a journey for me to understand that mental health was something. And having thought your whole life or for a really long time that it's not right to go to therapy, how did it feel the first time sitting in your therapist's office? It was like I I was defeated, like I was crazy and I couldn't control myself and I had to go. And I went to a few therapists because of um, my identity and I wanted to continue with all of my, uh, with the surgery that was most important to me. I went to uh, therapy on 28th Street in Manhattan and uh, there was this young male therapist that had just come out of school and he was amazing. I think his name was Sean and he had to leave. And then I was transferred to someone else. And this guy basically told me that who I am did not exist and started to show me photos of botched surgeries and everything like that. Told me that the identification of trans is something that I needed attention And so that kind of diverted me from therapy. Like for me, a look every day is something that's uh, an enhancement, a beauty. I, I understand my natural being and I've always understood that, you know. And so this other therapist that I went to made fun of me. I, you know, showed up and uh Well, one thing he did was I had an appointment and I show up and he wasn't there. And I called him and it wasn't even an apology or anything. It was just, uh, oh, well, I'm not there right now, but you can wait. Um, I can be there in 45 minutes. And I'm like, okay, no. But before that, I changed my hair. So I walked into his office one day and I had like red hair, streaks with red hair. And he goes, you know, that's what we have to deal with. Um, you can't find yourself, so you're changing your hair all the time because you need attention. And I was like, no, I'm an entertainer, and I just love, if I can have a different look, it it does actually make me feel great about myself, but now you're telling me that there's something wrong with wanting to wear different wigs and stuff. So for me, therapy was really like, off the chain. And I had to keep everything inside and just fight for myself. I got to a point where I was really tired, battling for my green card, all that stuff, fighting, you know, against everything. Family did not, you know, understand me or, you know, it was just like, it was a constant battle against everything. And it started to take a toll on me. And I was in an abusive relationship and thought that that abusive relationship was actually good for me. <laughs> so I went into therapy and, um, my therapist was a young lady and, um, just, it was a vibe. She didn't attack me. She didn't make me feel attacked. It was, you know, talk about what you want to talk about. And still I was very apprehensive because of the experiences I had had, but she made it so comfortable for me that it was just like, okay. And I started to talk and talk. And I realized that I blamed myself a lot. I realized that a lot of the things that I had been through, I wasn't alone. There are many other people who had been through these same things. And I could stop blaming myself for a lot of it because as a child molested, the last thing you would think someone would tell you is that if you didn't do this, this or that, then it wouldn't have happened to you. And so my molester was a priest and and high profile. So I couldn't even come forward. I faced doubt within myself. So it was 
it was a lot for me to actually, you know, let go of and, and, and even express to someone else. Thank you for sharing that. There's a lot there to definitely discuss and, and unpack. Um, therapy is is really important for many people, but sometimes the therapists you go see are not good for you. And that not every therapist is made equal and not every therapist is a good therapist. So I'm glad that you didn't give up with those experiences of therapy. And then um, to experience what you had gone through and and be able to open up about being molested by a priest um, that's not easy, even with the best of therapists. So having that safe space to be open and taking your time until you felt comfortable is really important. Um, so when you first went to therapy, was it to discuss uh, your identity? Was it to discuss uh, being molested? Was it everything growing up? It was everything. My husband, the relationship was toxic, but hey, I'm a trans woman. People are supposed to hate me. I'm supposed to be hidden. And I'm against all of that. If you can't be with me, just don't be with me. And um, he walked into our home one day after I was going through stress with the green card, trying to take care of him. I'm, I'm a protector. I'm a giver. I'm a nurturer. You know, I don't look at relationships as, okay, he has to give to me. I look at it as how can we both grow together And so he was not on that same level. And he came in the house one day. And in one of my most vulnerable states, I had no more shows. I was trying to get the money together because my green card was approved. And now I needed to come up with $2,000, but I couldn't work to come up with the $2,000. So, you know, and there were no shows for me to do anymore. Um, And modeling wasn't really paying. And so he told me that he had met someone else and that I just needed to uh, deal with that. And I walked out the street one day and there he was with another woman and her family in the car. And, you know, I asked him, I said, what's going on? And these people were sitting there laughing at me. And he he was like, just go home. So when he came in that night, he told me, he was like, look, I can't deal with you. You know, I want to have a life for myself and I can't deal with this whole issue of you being you and you not, you know, wanting to work. And, you know, it was just a whole lot about the essence of me that he didn't see. And so for the next um, five years, I lived with him coming in from work, taking a shower and going out to be with someone else. And he would tell me, well, we're just friends. We're just friends. And then there was the, uh, you can't be friends with my friends. And then my whole trans existence came into play. And uh, I knew I was, I was cracking. I was, I was just breaking. I just couldn't help it anymore. And my doctor saw that, and um, my doctor said to me, listen, if you don't go into therapy, you're, you're going to lose it. You're holding on to too much. You need someone to talk to. And I agreed with him and I went and it was the best thing I ever did for myself. You speak a lot about how you felt like you were to blame or a lot of it was on you. What was the process like or the journey of finally realizing, hey, it's not all me and like finding yourself? Well, um... It comes with finding value in yourself and looking in that mirror and finding value in yourself. But I will say this, there will always be a part of me that will blame myself. Just those small details of maybe you shouldn't have went to church that day, or maybe you should have spoken up, you should have been louder, you should have been more verbal. Because another part of that trauma is that there were other kids that were molested. And because I left and came to the U.S., the the other kids that were being molested uh, died of HIV and AIDS complications. 
And so from 1993 until 2000, when I first had the courage to get tested, I believed that my molester had infected me. Um, and I didn't even know what the transmission process was. So um, it was a very scary seven years for me. So so you, you continue to blame yourself today, you would say, for a lot of things? Um, no, I, I don't feel like I, when I say I still carry it, it's, it's just that it doesn't live with me. I don't blame myself, but I think I could have done more to prevent it. And I think that I can constantly do more to prevent it happening to others. I'm hearing advocacy and kind of helping people uh, find out like the warning signs and making sure that they can get themselves the help that they need. Because I think that's a that's a, a message that a lot of survivors of abuse and trauma live with. As a therapist, I see a lot of clients that will come in and say something like, well, I shouldn't have done this, or I should have done more, or I should have. And the first thing that I always am very like, <laughs> you know, we need to talk about this. It's it's not your fault. This is what we call victim blaming. You know, it's never the victim's fault. And really, we need to make societal changes, and we need to make so many changes in the world, and we need to teach people to treat people better. But it's not the fault of, you know, what you were wearing, what your sexuality is, what, you know, there's no excuse for abuse or, or anything like that. But I do love the, um, the advocacy work that you do in terms of, okay, well, now I'm going to share my story in, in hopes of like inspiring and helping others find themselves and heal through their own trauma, which is really what you've been really good at doing. <laughs> um, at what point did you find yourself and know that you were Dominique Jackson? There, there wasn't a point. There were levels to this stuff, right? And um, it was in writing the book. That was the, the first really facing myself. It was in, in getting up and saying, no, I deserve better. And I have the ability to live through this situation. And so when I got to writing my book and I started to see me on paper, it was, oh, whoa, you already got this far. Keep going. And when my community showed up to support me in that book, because that money went towards me paying for my green card, that was even more of a push. So I've always had people in my community, like my brother, Sean, who gave me a job at Destination Tomorrow as director of programs, you know, uh, helping with my community, getting people into care, being a resource for them, you know, so, um, yeah, (laughs) So telling your story and writing a book and talking to people in your community, the reaction was a positive one from your loved ones? No. But by that time, I had come to uh, realize that I have to look for, I need support. And I'm not going to get support in trying to turn people because I have to respect their values also, even if their values mean that it offends me. So now I take myself out of that space and I go into a space where I am loved, I am appreciated. And so I focused on the love that I was getting from my community. And that pushed me through to continue to sell my book, to continue to put it out there. How was the reaction from your family members and and loved ones? Well, my mom was hurt because she only read like the first two or three chapters and she was hurt. And I understood that. But um, it's my truth, and she is a part of my truth. And, of course, she has her truth. But um, it was, in a sense, kind of beautiful because I was able to express to my mother actually how I felt without having to stand in front of her and face her feeling 
disrespected to me and then me feeling guilty and then not truly expressing what I needed to express. So you found that it was like an easy way to to communicate your feelings, but it wasn't something that was going to be re-traumatizing in a sense to you. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Did she come around? Of course. (laughs) It's my mom, you know, and in my understanding Dominique Jackson and becoming Dominique Jackson, I also had to learn to forgive. I also had to put myself into the space of how other people felt. So for my mother, she had her dreams of what I was supposed to be, but those were her dreams and she needed to be able to understand that, you know? And also because I am this like determined go-getter, I kept, my mantra was, I will never ever be kept in darkness. And so no matter if I'm in darkness or surrounded by it, I have the power to go through it. And so I I, I just kept with that. And she came around. And for her to see someone that went from homelessness to uh, television, to accomplishing my dreams, to purchasing a home with my fiance, it is just like, for me now, I had that period of time where it was the you have to respect me. You have to love me. You're a bad mother. You're this, you're that. She wasn't a bad mother. She was in her truth. So what I needed to do was focus on me. And I continued to do what I needed to do. I loved from a distance from time to time, you know, and then I stood my ground. I will not be misgendered. I will not be this. I will not be that. You will. And, you know, but I still love you. If you need anything, please call me. And then she saw her child breakthrough on television to the point where she was like, I'm proud of you. And to hear my mother tell me that she is proud of me, to hear my mother respect my gender, to hear my mother respect my name, which she gave to me, you know, it is, um, it, it's a beautiful thing. It, it, it makes me feel like those nights that I, I cried gave me the motivation to push. Because when I cried and when I cry, I don't cry because... I want to feel sad and in the moment. I'm crying to find my strength. I'm crying because I want to be stronger. I'm crying because I, I, I'm pushing myself so hard to not feel, not to feel that pain, but to process that pain and get through it. There's so much strength in tears, and mm-hmm. it's such a powerful healing tool. Uh, crying for for whatever reason you cry, but I love that you shared that, and I love that your mom came around and you know you got through mm-hmm. that because that's not the story of a lot of people. It's the story of many, but not not a lot. And I'm curious if you're comfortable sharing with us, um, growing up, how you started to know that you wanted to transition. Well, for me, really, it it wasn't a transition. From the time I was four, I was always myself. When I went through um, puberty, um, I went back to school and the boys had deep voices and armpit hair and they stunk. And the girls were like, you know, developing. And what I realized was I was developing more on the female spectrum. Um, Breasts were growing. My voice never really changed. It was mannerisms like people say oh you have to like being a woman is like it's a natural thing you know and if you have only two uh examples to look at when I looked at males and I looked at females I aligned with females I never for a second thought of anything other than being female I didn't want to do a lot of silicone and all that stuff I just felt like I was already a woman I just that and 
everyone else got it messed up. I am the woman that I am. You just need to catch up to that. And hopefully I live long enough to be able to become myself. And they used to constantly tell me as a child, you're not a girl, you're not a girl. And I remember once saying to someone, you keep saying I'm not a girl, but you're saying that because you're trying to convince yourself. Just listen to your tone, listen to the way you're saying it. And then I went through the entire period of constantly being harassed and molested by other males used as their guinea pig. And it was confusing for me because... Here I am being told I'm not something that I know I am, and then I'm getting attention, not realizing that this attention is coming from people that are preying on you. So at times there were moments where it was like, okay, I'll do this because I want to feel this, and you're the only avenue for me to feel it, but this is wrong. And that's how they got me a lot of times. I know you want to experience this, so let me do it for you. And I'm like, well, no, um, I, I just wanted to... I always had the fairy tale of love and I I wanted to be, I didn't want to be pampered. I always wanted to be the go-getter and, and everything like that. I wanted to be in a relationship where we were both going after our goals and dreams. You know, I didn't want to be that woman that was in the house. And I've gotten a lot of flack for this too. Uh, it was not until I had uh, gotten married in my 30s that I actually really thought of having children. And the reason I thought of having children was because I thought I was never going to make it to television, you know? So it was like, okay, I'm going to adopt children. I'm going to, this is going to be my life. I'm going to work a nonprofit. And when television came along and it turned out to be so beautiful, I was, you know, getting ready to do the paperwork and stuff to adopt. And, um, then I met my fiance. I was just like, look, we can just have a great time together. He already has two kids, you know, and I just thought to myself, wow, I'll just, you know, so I never really had that same dynamic that others, others wanted, but I knew that I was a woman and those dynamics that people create, those kind of stereotypes that they create so that it, it at times makes you feel, well, maybe they are right. I'm not a woman. And I've met many other women that have said to me, look, you know, it's not that we are cursing women who have children. We just don't want them for ourselves. And I was like, and I started to see a different dynamic. And I was like, oh, this does exist. And it doesn't make you an evil troll. Exactly. That's a very personal choice for every single individual, you know, having kids and starting a family. But one thing that resonates with me that you just said, it's when you were younger, people telling you, you're not a girl. And you're like, I know I'm a girl. You got it all wrong. And I think that's very important because the world often wants to, you know, just this is how it's always been and this is how it is and this is it. But that's so harmful. Yeah. And it could have been so much easier for you if they just listen. Well, that's the thing. People don't listen, right? We're constantly, we listen to respond. We don't listen to understand. And that was one of my revelations in 2006. I had to start listening because when I listened and I observed, I was able to determine friend, foe. I was able to understand stuff. I even started doing this thing where I told people, I'm not going to argue with you. There's Google. You know, we're not going to argue statistics and facts. Um, I started to watch CSI Miami and the character Callie was so factual and to the point that I was like, yeah, this is me. You know, I, I want to, yes, it's fun and everything to be outside, but when it comes to certain things, fact is important. Absolutely. I, there's so many things you said that I think are so powerful that I, 
I want to go back to one specific thing. When you were talking about your relationship with your mom, you said every parent has a dream of what they want their child to be. And you understood that and you still had the whole healing process and were able to love her from a distance. And I just want our listeners, whether you're a parent or a child, to recognize that, that it's something I see in therapy all the time of, it's not necessarily right, but your parents do have for this dream of who they want you to be. And that's a process they need to grieve because it barely works out the exact same way they want it. But in order to heal as a child, it's something you need to understand that your parent wants from you. And just recognizing that, I think, is huge in healing. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know, I, I laugh because to a parent, it's always like defiance. And then they come from a place of, I'm protecting my child. I'm, I'm doing this. And so I had to see those aspects of it and go, yes, you were trying to protect me, but you didn't know what you were doing. And it's okay. You, you didn't understand. And it's okay for you not to understand. And even looking at my fiance at times, I say to him, I was like, you don't have to understand. He is not you. And he's like, yeah, well, he's my child. I could feel for him. I could think. I'm like, you have to stop. You have to think about it from an unhypocritical perspective, right? You didn't want your parents to do certain things. Like, I always come in and not the voice of reason this time, but sometimes folks like parents around me hate it. Because I'll go, I even say to my sister, I'm like, what were you doing at 16? And she's like, well, it's not the same as thing. I said, well, okay, instead of getting angry, talk to her, explain to her why it scares you for her to go down the street because you went down the street and did other things. So now you're fearful that she's going to do these same things. So we have to understand ourselves. We have to understand ourselves. And we also have to understand when we try to put ourselves in the perspective of others, we have to see it from not how we would see it in their shoes, but how they would see it in their shoes based on their gender, their age, their culture, their, I mean, so many things to take into consideration. That's when we truly start to understand others. But when we're seeing it from our perspective in their shoes, it doesn't really work. We'll never get it and we'll just be judgmental. Well, that's what's happening in the entire world today. When we're just having to discuss racism and, and, and transphobia and homophobia, and I am here in this, this just thinking to myself, why do you care? Why have we made this an issue? Why is it we're human beings, see the human in each other, and let's see how we can make progress in the world. Let's get rid of the pedophiles in the world. But here you are telling people that they shouldn't be who they are, going out protesting, doing all this stuff when an individual is going to be who they are regardless. And now with the laws being put into place, you can't harm us or hurt us anymore without being prosecuted. So therefore, like, make it make sense. Get another hobby, find something else to do, you know, but this, uh, this idea of us constantly attacking each other, it does come from the perspective of I want. When I hear people say, oh, um... Uh, trans people shouldn't exist. What they're really saying is, I am not trans, so therefore nothing else should exist because therefore I am the only thing that exists. And if you study biology, you should know. Like, I hear guys say, oh, well, we only make boys. Like, what? Yeah, it's it's really, really sad and harmful what's going on in the world. Yes, we have laws, but we want people to feel and, and just make it make sense and like just yeah. focus on yourself, focus on who you love, your own family, your own, you know, uh, situations and things would be so much better. Um, 
how can we help young queer transgender questioning individuals recognize their mental health? Well, I think we have to just make sure that we put it out there and make spaces available for them to reach out. We have to continue to have people come forward and talk about mental health so that people know it's okay. You're not, for want of a better word, losing it because you're going to therapy. Actually, therapy is going to stop you from losing it. So we have to make it a thing, you know, and it's slowly and surely becoming, I saw where we have, you know, online therapy, which is really helpful. And places are now starting to have therapy for uh, their employees and stuff like this. That's what it's about because you never know what a person is carrying. Yeah. Just accessibility to therapy and continuing to have these conversations. In terms of mental health providers and counselors, what do you think we get wrong in terms of homelessness, sex, work, and survival? Well, I wouldn't say it's what you get wrong, because then I would be speaking across a broad spectrum, and there are some really great therapists out there, yourselves included. But from my personal experience, I think that therapists need to really understand that you are you're dealing with someone who is already fearful of exposing their entire life to you. And even though you may be degreed and doctorated and whatever, you're still another human being. So you have to come from, it's really, I think it's going to be difficult, but you have to come from a space of being clinical, yet approachable, yet pleasant, yet understanding. And one thing that um, I don't think people get is sometimes you have to be able to say, okay, I don't understand that. Explain it to me. I've never been through that. What is that like? You know, because sometimes you talk to your therapist and you get, oh, yeah, I heard about that. And it was thing. And it's like, okay, but you heard about it through someone else's lens. This is it coming through my lens. You know, and my therapist, she like listens a lot. You know, she's not always diagnosing. Well, you have da 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 da. You know, that comes like, way after. And if I even, like, sometimes I self-diagnose and she'll go, well, let's think about that for a second before you even go there. And that really helps me because you're thinking something's wrong. So you're ready to be diagnosed with something or the therapist is just ready to say, this is wrong. That's wrong. I'll come back. Or That's a great point. It, it kind of goes back to what we we're talking about earlier. It's not just for therapists. I think humans in general, if we can learn to listen more, and not diagnose mental illnesses or anything like that, but just not make assumptions, not, you know, come to conclusions without knowing the person. Um, just listen, listen to somebody's story. And sometimes too, people don't want an answer because what I discovered with my therapist is that as I would tell her something, she would always say, you know, you're answering that yourself, right? So if we listen sometimes, you know, People just need, I think, to be able to talk without being judged or, or being, you know, like we say, analyzed. So sometimes it's just, just listen to the story so that I get it off my chest. I don't need a response. I just need to go, I hear you. That's powerful. And for therapists listening, like Dominique said, you don't need to know everything and have all the answers. Asking, like, can you explain that a little bit more? is okay and necessary too. It's worse if you're pretending that you know everything your client has gone through or is going through. Yeah, and when you go into a therapist's office with the fear, like for me personally, I analyzed my therapist like every blink, every like nose nod, the like twitch of the lip, everything for me was, I was really scrutinizing someone and realizing that they were scrutinizing me right back, you know? So make it pleasant. Mm-hmm. 
sounds like hyper hypervigilance there. You know, when we've experienced yeah. a lot of trauma, then we we kind of become like we're aware of everybody's like facial expressions, tone of voice, like blinks. How many times did they why did they look that way? So you're when you're a therapist, you're having people come to you for so many different reasons. And, you know, they probably are going to be scared to talk to you. They're going to share these like big stories with you, deep, emotional, sensitive, painful stories. And even if you're not a therapist, if you're just somebody who's a supporter or a friend or a family member, um, you know, it's really important to just like let go and and not try to you know, find solutions. And have your coffee before the um, <laughs> session because the worst thing is to yawn. Oh my, oh my gosh, could you imagine? I mean, listen, yeah. it's funny though because I know that, you know, you're working and stuff like that, but I remember my... my my therapist, she had like, she was apologizing. She was everything. She was like, Tommy, I'm so tired. The baby kept me all night and everything like that. And I'm like, it's okay. I understand you're tired. But you know, if your client doesn't realize that and they're like deep into a story and then you're like, <gasps> talking about stories, I know you've been through a lot. And um, one of the issues that you have experienced in a time in your life was homelessness. Can you share that part of your story with us and what that was like for you? So my homelessness in hindsight was really actually like hanging out and fun. It was not because I was able to be myself. So at the time, couch surfing, you know, going from this person's house to that person's house was like, oh, hey, we chilling. It's just a party from one place to the other. The reality that I was homeless really didn't set in until I was actually in a secure apartment. Um, and that's when it was like, wait, you, you, you were homeless. I remember sleeping in Central Park and the camaraderie that the people that were sleeping, the other homeless people that were with me had, like, we looked out for each other. Like, I was sick. They bundled me up, you know. Um, it was so cold. My lips were chapping and breaking and they would give me their stuff, you know, look out for food. And it was only like a three or four day period in Central Park when until I was able to get back to hotel rooms and stuff like that. But um, homelessness is not a easy thing. You're, you don't have a place to shower. You don't have a place to feel the, the things that people consider take for granted every day. You get up, you brush your teeth, you take a shower. A lot of damage happened to uh, my teeth, cavities, everything like that. It was, and then it just kept going from there. Um, you know, the feeling that you don't belong to society, you're, you're, you're nothing, you're just drifting by. You see people with goals and you can't set goals because you don't even have a place to set them from. You know, so the only goal you have is to not be homeless. And there are those people who actually um, accepted homelessness. They're like, this is where I'll be. This is what I am. And I could not accept that. I, I refused to continue to be homeless. And I had to do the survival things that I needed to do to be able to find, have a roof over my head. Yeah. And in terms of survival, can you tell us about youth homelessness and queer children and what survival means for them? First off, no child should be homeless. No child should be on the street. And when I came to New York, I was like 18 years old and I was homeless. But there were 13 and 14-year-old kids out there homeless on the street. And what happens is you become victims 
because you want a place to stay for the night and some older person is going to take you home. You, you end up doing things that may demoralize you. You end up feeling devalued. You end up feeling like nothing. And now the only thing that you have to survive is negotiating your body with, with someone else or stealing or hurting someone else. For, for youth, it's not a, you know, it's not a defiance for anyone to, to, to have to become homeless because of identity. It's not a defiance. And I feel like some people use that as punishment. Okay, so you don't want to follow my rules. I'm going to put you out there into the street, and then you're going to see what it's like there, and then you're going to come back to me, and you're going to do as I say. And for some youth, they're not going to do that. They're going to choose to be in the street because, from my experience, I would rather be in the streets and happy and be able to live in my truth than be subjugated to being imprisoned and trapped in a box, destroying myself mentally. Yeah, not being accepted by family and being pushed out like that is very traumatizing. And I can't imagine anybody wanting to go back to that. As you may have already seen, Dave Chappelle's new Netflix special, Jokes About Trans People. What do you think is the harm behind these jokes? Well, um, let me just put it to you this way. I'm not paying any attention to Dave Chappelle. Okay? I'm not. In this world... Unfortunately, there are people out there who will find other people's situations funny. They would find that they can joke about it, you know, because they don't understand it. They don't live it. So to them, it's funny. I say, gather your box, go over there with your friends and enjoy that. Meanwhile, just don't step on my toes. Don't block me from work. Don't bar me from anything. And don't bring that shit to my face. Keep it where you want to keep it. Um, I, I don't find it funny when people make jokes about anyone, period, right? Because when you're using someone's, you know, things that are, are hurt and traumatize people and, and you find that funny, that says something about you. I would say to any other trans person out there, don't watch. Don't re-traumatize yourself. Don't watch that stuff. Be in your strength. Like I said before, I find spaces that celebrate me, right? And now if a negative space is bordering onto my positive space, then we will attack. Definitely. But freedom of speech, people are going to say what they want to say, right? And for me, it's horrible. It's harmful, but I'm going to be strong, right? Nothing he has said moves me. It just shows me oh, that's the space he's in. You stay in your space. It's, it's a stupid space to me, but um, stay over there. And if anyone follows that kind of doctrine or anything like that, that says a lot about them too. And I don't have to convince you or change your mind or make you like me. You can be as ignorant as you want to be. That's on you. Don't bring it to my space. It's, it's just such a huge issue when somebody so popular and famous goes out and says these things because there are people that don't know better and that's on them too. You know, it's it's our responsibility to go online, research, read, do whatever you need to do to understand. But it's just so harmful, especially when there's so many people of the LGBTQ plus community who are struggling with this and struggling with acceptance. And then to see, you know, this on TV so largely 
is so painful. It's frustrating, you know, and for many, it's painful. But to me, again, it's like I say to everyone out there who happens to have to go across this this hateful narrative, right? Be strong in yourself. Someone cannot tell you who you are. You know who you are. So if someone says to me, oh, you're tall, that's not an insult. If you say to me, you're tall and you're stupid, that's an insult. But you don't know me. So you're the idiot because you're talking about things you don't know. So I'm not going to stop myself to feed into that. Should the networks do something about it? Let them decide. There are folks now out there. I saw on TikTok a young lady that was talking about there were so many African women that were murdered and and kidnapped. There's so many... uh, Men shot, African-American men of color shot and killed. And it's only 28 trans people murdered in a certain amount of time. And I said, the one thing that you're missing in this narrative is they're all people of color being killed. And trans people are being murdered by other people of color who are turning around and saying, don't discriminate against me, respect me, but yet they're turning around and killing trans people. So that's why it's a double for us, right? People don't get that. When you feel like you are at the bottom, bottom, bottom of the barrel, it's worse, right? Because the the gay folks say, at least I'm not trans. The drag queens say, at least I'm not trans, you know, not every drag queen, but I've heard it. You know, when I worked at, at Escolita, I had uh, a show director who told me there was nothing such as trans. You're crazy. So trans people are constantly, constantly, constantly being attacked. The first thing someone jumps to say is, oh, you're a tranny. You're a this. You can't have children. You can't have this. And I'm like, you don't know my narrative. You sound stupid. Right. But again, it's what other people are thinking. It's what other people are feeling because they want us to be, to, to be ashamed or disgraced of ourselves. And I'm not ashamed of myself. I am not disgraced of who I am, right? I'm an intelligent, beautiful woman. And that's what I want other people out there to look at themselves and know this. And when they hear these things, right, don't entertain it. Don't pull it in. Do not entertain these negative narratives, Right. One of my girlfriends wrote a thing about. um, Oh, I can actually read it to you. Girl, it is my understanding that the comedian being argued about had been a client of trans women for years, which brings back the fact that our aggressors are usually folks who love slash lust us. Nothing new. Just if you see him, charge him extra. I found it hilarious. But the very same narrative that you know, people were using to say that trans people should not be upset and, oh, it's just a joke, were now on my feed saying, oh, you need to check your facts. And so as I went down, I said, now, see, this is a joke, right? Because the only part I get from this is charge him extra, right? Not bashing him, not anything, charge him extra. So it was funny, but they didn't see it that way. Just like we, as as trans folk, did not see those jokes funny, right? And again, let's take the hypocrisy of it. If a white comedian stood up there and said anything, anything at all 
about black folks, including the black trans folks, we would be on them. And trans folks have been fighting battles with our community, with the black community for years, showing up for Black Lives Matter rally, showing up in spaces and being beaten while other people, while they were protesting the murder of George Floyd, trans women were being beaten and, and murdered by the same people saying it was wrong for the police to do that to George Floyd. So that means that they didn't see us as human beings, right? And I am not going to give any kind of leverage or any kind of space to anyone who doesn't see me as a human being, you're trash to me. Mm-hmm. Very powerful. And and I guess that would be fair to say that as a transgender person, you've been excluded from the Black community. Is that fair to say? At, at times, it has felt like that. I have sat there and heard women, Black women say, I can't believe that they discriminated against me for this job. Right. It's because I'm black. It's because I'm this. I have a right to work here. I have a right to be here. But because I'm black, you're going to tell me that I that I can't think and then turn right around in the same breath and look at a trans person and say, you people shouldn't exist. Same breath. So it's like it's a level of hypocrisy that I find that like when I see it, I just look at those people as I just need to put you in a different space because you can't share my space. You can't see that you are a part of the problem. You are the problem. And every problem that a lot of people have with other people for their identity, their race, their culture, anything, is a you problem. Like for me, when people talk about, oh, trans, this, and trans, those are you problems. I don't have a problem with my transness. I'm quite fine. I know who I am. Just listening to everything that you're saying, it seems like the biggest message or the most one of the most important things to you is protecting your space. Like that is how you're able to maintain a better mental health. Yes, of course, because people will come into your space and redirect it. They will make you subliminally send messages to you that you don't even realize. Like your friends come up to you and they go, well, don't you think you want to... And I'm like, ask me to do something. Don't ask me if I think I want to do something if you're trying to get me to do something. That kind of... It's like, no... So in my space, you're going to respect my space. It's like my home. There are certain people that can't come to my home because I could sense your negative energy and I just don't want it. When I go to think about, oh my gosh, her shoes are ugly. I have to stop and say to myself, wait, why would you say that? What, what's the purpose of that? What are you feeling? So I'm mindful of the way I treat people. I will be in the middle of an argument and stop myself and go, no, if I say that, that's going to be too much. You know? Because I've grown since 2006, I've had to grow. I don't see the need for some of these arguments. I don't see the need for discrimination. I don't see the need to dehumanize anyone. Speaking with Dominique has shed some light into incredibly serious topics like paving the way for Black trans individuals, LGBTQIA rights, and persevering through even the toughest of experiences in your life. Dominique made her way from Trinidad and Tobago all the way to New York City, spending some of her life homeless, in an abusive relationship, and coming to terms with who she is. She mentioned the importance of therapy and the troubles of finding the best therapist for you. 
It is a trial and error system for some of us, but trust us, it's worth the wait once you find the one that clicks with you. If you find yourself needing to talk to somebody, BetterHelp Online Therapy will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist in under 48 hours. It's not a crisis line, it's not self-help, it is professional therapy done securely online. It's way more affordable than traditional offline therapy and financial aid is available, and it makes getting therapy easier. Just schedule your message, phone, or video session and complete it from your phone, in your car, in your home, or wherever you are. We're so honored to have Dominique as a guest on our show, and we can't commend her enough for being so brave and so open about her own mental health journey and for encouraging others to take care of themselves by getting therapy. There's a special offer for Getting Better listeners. Get 10% off your first month of online therapy at betterhelp.com slash getting better. That's betterhelp, B-E-T-T-E-R, help.com slash getting better. There's a lot of people, let's say parents, that really want to accept and love their children for who they are, but they struggle to, or maybe they're struggling to understand what their child needs coming out to them as part of the LGBTQ plus community. So what tips or advice or what could they do to facilitate acceptance? And- so when it comes to parents and stuff, of course, it's acceptance and, and stuff like that. Never use tolerance. Never use those words um, with children. And you're supposed to accept your children. So that shouldn't be something that, that you have to tell them, oh, I accept you for this. You accept your children regardless of, of who they are, what they are. I've had parents that have said, I'd rather have a son in jail than have a gay child. You know, so that, that, is, that is not acceptance. That is hate. For children, I feel like they know a lot more than a lot of times parents think they know. And so parents are constantly trying to protect something that the children a lot of times have already experienced, already know. And parents have to stop coming from this place of fear and frustration and thinking that genetically, because these kids are theirs genetically, that they're going to do the same things that they are. They, they, you have to give children the ability to find their path. And to some parents, that may sound like, you're crazy. You know what this world is like? I didn't know. You educate your children about everything. You let them know the dangers that's out there. If you hand me a map and you say, you're going here, you're going there, and you have to get there, right? I'm not thinking about the dangers along the way. You're just telling me where I need to end up. But parents need to now start to let us know, look, if you're going to be a lawyer, you're going to have to go through this, this, that, and that. Don't just start putting in your kid's head you're going to be a lawyer and then tell them don't argue, right? You see your kids dancing. Oh, only girls do that. You just, you just blocked a path, right? You know, you have to be strong enough as parents to correct some things that may seem like mistakes after instead of trying to be prevent. And prevention sometimes just when it comes to what kids love and what they're aspiring for, let them go out there and play football if they want to. Just because you broke your arm doesn't mean they will, you know? Let the boy dance. That doesn't mean that he's automatically gay. Maybe he just loves dancing. You know, so look for what your children like. Be a guide to your children instead of being this this kind of narcissistic kind of you have to be me. You are me. I'm a doctor. You have to be a doctor. I'm a, you, you, you know, 
And for some folks, it works because some kids will say, oh, I love what daddy does. That's who I want to be. You know, and other kids will go, I hate what dad does. So don't force that child that doesn't like it. Don't take it personally because that child has other gifts. Explore the gifts that your children have. And as far as being gay and transgender and bi, to be quite honest with you, focus on their future first. Focus on their future. If your kids come out to you as gay or bi, don't make that the focus. Make their protection the focus. So now in protecting them, you are saying, here, I'm not going to put you in the street. That is a powerful message. Powerful message. Because they say, I'm protecting my child. I don't want my child to be gay. And I'm making air quotes here. But then you're putting him out on the street. Well, protecting from what then? You know? Right. You don't want your child to be gay. But if your child is gay, then you have a problem. Exactly. And that problem is not going to go away. And what you're doing is now you're stopping the progress because now, again, you're focused on the child's uh, identity and and, and sexual preference instead of focusing on school, instead of focusing on how many children out there. Like sometimes when I worked as director of programs, I met kids that were brilliant, that could draw murals, that could do everything. But what happened? They couldn't go to school because mommy and daddy said, you're gay, you're going out into the street. So their dreams are shot. So now they have to try to fight from the bottom of the barrel. So parents need to find out what their issues are with their children identifying as anything else and stop forcing those issues onto children. And the worst thing that I hear is when the folks go, well, look at how you turned out. You know, I've heard parents say that. I was in my office one day and a parent says to the child, well, look at how you turned out. You're in the streets. You're doing this. You're doing that. Blah, 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 blah. And I looked at her, I said, I said, so they've been doing this from 13. They're now like 18, 19 years old. And now you're coming down on them. When are you going to be accountable for you not giving them the space to be able to go to school and do the things that they want instead of saying, okay, you put on a skirt, you don't come in my house. How is a child supposed to focus on school when they have to focus on their safety in their own space? Because remember, when we're growing up, we're looking at the love. We're looking at, oh, you love us, you care for us, you know, thing. But as soon as we get to a certain age now or we find out something about us, we start to see this distance. You know, it was very hard for me to, to, to still feel like my family loved me because it was like, wait a second. All I said was I identify this way and I'm still even confused about it. And now all of a sudden, the people that were telling me they love me and they'll always be there for me and they cared about me were now telling me that I was an abomination and I need to to go. It's confusing. It's hurtful. Yeah. And suicide, the rates of suicide are, are huge amongst children, youth of the LGBTQ plus community because of this lack of acceptance, lack of safety, lack of support. Well, we're told that. You're told in certain communities you're better off dead. You hear your parents say, I'd rather you die than you be gay or trans or want to wear women's clothes. You know, at one point in time, I've heard parents say, okay, well, why can't you do like RuPaul and take it off? Why does it have to be all the time? They don't understand the difference. They don't want to educate themselves. What you're saying to your child is something is wrong with you. You know, even, even though they go through stuff with their parents, we still turn around and do the same thing to our kids. Mm-hmm. And that's why grandmas and grandpas are always so happy and smiling. Mm-hmm. Because they're like, mm-hmm, you gave me trouble, but now look. 
we gotta we gotta break those uh, patterns in families because those yes. patterns are passed down from generation to generation to generation. And so therapy, when we go to therapy and we work on ourselves, even if we don't think we have a problem, like even if we think we have a good life and we have a good family, I think going to therapy is so important for this reason because we break the generational cycles that lead to these things happening and you know building acceptance and love for other people no matter what. Yes, that's so absolutely true. I hope that message gets spread everywhere, especially the past like five minutes of you speaking about being a guide and yeah. learning about why it's bad for you. It's That was incredible. To end it off, is there any tip that you would give to a listener or anyone who is a transgender person or part of the LGBTQ community? Um, shine bright. A lot of the things that I went through were painful. They were hella painful. But in hindsight, I learned. My traumas taught me. And through therapy, I was able to understand that. Now I'm able to understand that when I hear someone speaking, it's, it's, it's for me to just listen. To those of you in the LGBTQIA plus community, right? You still have a life. It's yours, right? And, and you have to, if no one else is going to help to support you, you have to take that life by the reins. And instead of going to your neighbor and telling, her all, telling them all your issues, get a therapist. Find someone that you can talk to that's going to understand and going to help to motivate you and push you to be who you want to be. Don't give up on your dreams, right? Make dreams, goals, make plans. And I will tell you all this. I sat in my apartment, a 300 square foot apartment with basically nothing. And I took a book and I started to draw and sketch the house that I wanted to live in. And for some reason at that time, anyone that I said that to told me that I was delusional. You're never going to own a house. TV, my ex-husband used to tell me, girl, that's not happening for you. You're going to be in this apartment cooking for me for the rest of your life or until I leave you. And guess what? I didn't sit in that. You can't sit in the, in the oppression that people force onto you. And even though they may force it so thick that it doesn't seem like you could get out of there, you have to still keep fighting. You have to fight and do it with kindness. Don't change. Don't become shady. Don't become mean because then you're not healing. So fight for what you want. You don't have to win every battle, but you're going to win the war. Wow. Thank you. That is so powerful, so inspirational. And again, I hope it reaches as many people as possible so that they can hear this, know they're not alone, and take this advice and insight from you. Dominique Jackson, thank you so, so much for everything you shared with us today. You're an inspiration and um, we loved having this conversation. Thank you all so much. And please continue to spread the word, continue to spread the message. And it's not even about acceptance. It's about respect. Let's just respect each other. Respect your children, respect your brothers, respect your friends. You know, I feel like our differences are what make it so beautiful. So when I travel and when I meet people, I want to learn about them. I don't want to criticize them. I want to know why you wear your skirt that way, right? Not because, oh, you shouldn't, but because, ah, there's a story behind it. So we just finished 
talking to the amazing Dominique Jackson, and we had such an amazing conversation with her about such important topics, and I felt like we could have talked to her for hours because there's just so much to talk about. Um, What are your takeaways from this episode? I wanted to keep going. I wanted to hear more of her powerful messages. As she was speaking, I was like, oh, I got to bring that up. And I got to bring that back up. But she was just saying so many incredible things. And near the end, I think for about three to four minutes, we speak about parenting. And she gives really useful tips to parents and how they can navigate certain struggles and dynamics with their children. And just the things she was saying were so incredible. And I, I hope if you are listening to this and you do listen to this, show your parents. I think it is such an incredible message and take it in yourself and take whatever you can from it. But yeah, it was amazing. What was your favorite part? I think that was really huge for me too, but I also love her messages on acceptance and how we shouldn't be accepting each other. We should just love, right? Because when she mentioned that acceptance means that somehow you have to accept me, which means that somehow you're seeing me as less than you. And I thought that was so powerful because we often talk about acceptance and definitely not tolerance because tolerance is just like, I tolerate you, but I don't you know, think you're a human being sometimes, you know, it's it's terrible. So that has been something we've heard, but I've always gone under the assumption that acceptance is the way to be and the way she phrased it and the way she like talked about it was just so much more eye-opening and it really resonated with me. Yeah. And we always want the aha moments and they don't happen often in life, but that was a big one. Another thing you both mentioned when she was talking about, once again, parenting, and then you reflected back about, I accept me for who I am. You need to work on why you don't. Yes. You know it and you think about it, but when hearing it articulated like that, it's so true. You need to do the work to learn why. I don't have to do the work because I don't fit what you don't believe in. It was amazing. So amazing. And the fact that she said she has known who she was since since age four. And that's right around the time when, you know, children begin to develop a personal identity. Like if we, if we start to look at the, you know, developmental stages and everything, they start to know themselves a little bit better. They start to develop who they are. And she's known from that moment who she was. And she said, people were fighting her saying, no, you're not a girl. You're not a girl. And she's like, you got it all wrong. I know who I am. And it just goes to show we need to listen. That's, I think, so powerful because we try to like ingrain our values and ideas and our, you know, what we think people should be in in young children. And I think that can be so harmful. Absolutely. And the way she positioned it too, is that's an ongoing process. Like she will see somebody who's wearing shoes and her first thought will be those shoes are ugly. And then she has to take a step back. And why am I thinking that way? Why do I need to comment on someone else's shoes? So it's just one of the greatest episodes, I think. And like I said, so eye-opening on so many different topics. And I think one of the biggest takeaways was just listening from curiosity. Whether you're a therapist, a friend an advocate, regardless of where you are, listening to somebody from a place of curiosity, not a place of judgment. Huge takeaway, curiosity, love, and openness. And I think it was an amazing episode and we hope you all enjoyed it as much as we did. 
Thank you so much for listening today. This discussion is so important to ending the mental health stigma. If you want to help the mental health movement, you can do so by leaving a written review for this podcast to help it reach more people. If you want to dive deeper into these topics and learn more about mental health, make sure you subscribe and follow Micheline and Nadia's mental health podcast, Mind-Fully Healing, anywhere you stream your podcasts.